it's an interesting time for us as a church because we, we wonder whether the Lord's got things for us to be doing in the future. Uh, we've taken a, a bit of time to step back and think through who we are as a church, what our vision and our values are, and how perhaps better we can accomplish those things in his strength. So, so might it be that he wants us to, to plant churches, to plant a church further out in East Oxford, perhaps? Uh, might it be that he wants us to, to be using the building that we have better, to be more intentional uh, for evangelism, for discipling, for training, for sending? And so at this point in the church's life, we're in a time of prayer, time of fasting, and thinking through and praying through and seeking to discern together perhaps what the future might hold. And Acts 16 has been very helpful for me this week. Um, I want to just bring out two things from the text. Do keep it in front of you. Um, We're there. And two points. I like two points. Two are easier than three. So two points. One is a deliberate gospel plan, verses 1 to 13. And secondly, a diverse gospel people, verses 14 to 34. Before we jump into chapter 16, though, let me just give you a brief overview of Acts and how Acts works. Acts is about what Jesus is doing through his church in the world. As the word spreads, as the gospel spreads as Jesus' kingdom spreads. And so you see it working in steps. You see it happening, first of all, in Jerusalem, and then out into Samaria, and then into the ends of the earth, the rest of the world. And in chapter 16 here, we are just, if you like, reaching the ends of the earth. We're going into Europe. Chapter 15, if you flick back just beforehand, it was an encouraging chapter because it was the relevant powers that be who were thinking through, well, what does it mean for this gospel of Jesus to go to the Gentiles? to go to non-Jews. They were thinking that through, what does that look like in terms of cultural stuff, in terms of religious stuff? How can we best reach Gentiles without offending Jews? And in chapter 16, we see that happening. The gospel goes to Gentiles. Chapter 15 as well, just beforehand, it was potentially quite discouraging as you end the chapter because you've got Paul and Barnabas squabbling. Splitting. These two missionary partners who have been working together divide and go and do different things. And you finish 15 thinking, goodness, that looks a bit precarious. What's going on there? And what amazingly we see, though, in chapter 16 is that the Lord blesses and there is real fruit. Our our fears were, were unfounded despite division, despite gospel ministers having different ideas about things. The Lord is still sovereign. He's still in control. He's still bringing about his purposes and his plans. He's still bringing glory to himself as the kingdom of Jesus goes out. So that's where we are in 16. First point, it's a deliberate gospel plan, verse 1 to 13. And I want you to see that this chapter is not random. It's very obvious to say it, but as we consider guidance and direction and our future, it's certainly not just a mysterious, well, let go and let God, and he will blow us along where he wants us. It's very clear in the chapter that Paul and his team had real nous about them. There was strategy, there was wisdom, there was planning, organisation. They'd sat down and done their homework. So you see it firstly in how Paul trains people. You see that in Timothy, verses 1 to 3. Now, we know in hindsight, Timothy was a, 
a very important uh, foundational man within the early church, a massive part of, of his life and ministry. And so why recruit Timothy? Well, he would be useful in the team, I take it. He, he's, he's departed from Barnabas. We've seen that. He's still got Silas. That becomes clear later on. And it looks likely that Luke joins in as well, because halfway through the chapter, it starts becoming we. Luke seems to join them. And so presumably the team needs to grow, and here comes Timothy. Timothy, to whom Paul will invest so much. In some senses we read in 2 Timothy that he will pass the baton on of ministry to this young man. Timothy, who's happy to be circumcised. He doesn't need that from chapter 15. But he chooses to be. Again, presumably so he can better reach the Jews with the gospel. Barriers are being removed so the gospel can be heard. Like Paul, Timothy is free, but he will become a Jew to reach Jews. And that's costly, that's painful. So there's clear strategy in Paul's mind. He, he goes for Timothy, seeking to build a team around him. Look for, look for guys to pass ministry onto who can flourish. One of my mantras for life, I think I've shared it from the front before, is, well, who can I build up and encourage who can surpass me in my ministry? Who can I pour myself into so that they can go on and do a much better job than I can? Because the danger is, well, I want to be proud, I want to be protective, and I want to carve out a little place for myself, and I care about me and my ministry and my reputation And my little empire, and I want to be confident and comfortable. And yet then it's not about building his kingdom, is it? It's about me. So let me ask you, who are you investing in? Who are you seeking to to grow? Who are you targeting to, to build up? If we're going to plant in a few years' time... We need to be strategic in growing, if you like, the core of the church, those people who are, who are willing to serve in a Christ-like way, who can handle his word well, who can teach others, who can explain it, who can develop and grow others. That seems to be what the plan was at this stage. Paul's not just training Timothy. You see it in verses 4 to 5 as well. They're, they're travelling around and they're growing others. They're doing work amongst the baby churches. They're taking news of chapter 15. And so, verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So Paul grabs Timothy and invests in him. They go together with the team and invest in these local churches. And they grow. How do Christians grow? How do churches grow? They grow through people doing ministry. Who are you investing in? Would you like to be invested in? Who can you find? So firstly, it's a deliberate gospel plan and it's about people. Secondly, I want to show you it's about places too. And you see that, first of all, I think, as they head to Philippi. So look at verses 11 and 12. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. 
From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. So notice Philippi is the end goal for Paul. The first place they go is the port of Neapolis, verse 11. Neapolis, large town. Not a bad place to start a ministry, to plant a church, to do something new. But he doesn't. Verse 12, Luke quietly tells us why. Because Philippi is the focus. Because in Luke's opinion, at least, it was the leading city of the district of Macedonia. We'll see in a second, God hasn't told them to come to Philippi. He's told them to go to Macedonia. And yet Philippi seems to make the most strategic sense for the team. It was even a Roman colony. Opportunities to get from there back to the heart of the Roman Empire. Philippi was strategic. Philippi needed a church. Plant a church there and you can let the gospel spread out through the natural streams that go from the town. The connections, the networks. And again, you see it again and again, actually, in the book of Acts. You see them targeting a main town, and from there the gospel goes out along the networks. And churches are planted on and on and on. Which is why, and we've said it before, Oxford, in lots of ways, well, it's a privilege to be here. Because it is exceptional. It's exhausting, because people don't necessarily stay here that long. What an opportunity to invest in people and to grow people in the gospel and so they can then go on and influence the world. As we consider East Oxford, are there places like that even within East Oxford? Centres, strategic centres where you can plant and the gospel could trickle out to different towns, to different regions within East Oxford. So places were important for Paul. You see it at a smaller scale as well. I think in verse 13, Luke says, On the Sabbath we went out the city, outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now we don't know why they're meeting there. And we don't know why Paul expects to find them there. Maybe someone had told him. Maybe he'd been given a flyer. It does seem pretty likely that there's no Jewish synagogue in the town. It would take ten Jewish men to start a synagogue. And men are not mentioned by the riverside. And so it seems pretty likely that these women are here and it's a pre-synagogue. It's a a Sabbath meeting. It's going on outside the city and it's by a river. And Paul expects to find them there and so strategically goes for people perhaps who are waiting for the Messiah people with whom he could share the Old Testament scriptures. He had common ground and take them to Christ. I guess my question is, well, where are those people in Oxford? Where are those people in your week? The the colleague who, who loves to talk about their ideas of God. The neighbour who has a respect for the Bible but just doesn't quite get it. I guess the question is, well, how are we going to deliberately engage with those kinds of people? How are we going to be strategic in finding people in those sorts of places? Are we making the the most of events like real life? Like last Thursday, where we can watch a film 
and we can talk about it and we can talk about uh, the worldview being explained there, being taught there. What do we think as Christians about that worldview? So let's be praying God would be opening our eyes to those kinds of people, that he would give us opportunities. So, there's a deliberate gospel plan. He doesn't just sit around expecting God to make it happen. And yet the bottom line is, this is a unique point in salvation history. This is a unique point in the Bible. It's a a key point where the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. We're, We're entering Europe. The Lord directs them and he guides them. And so you see that in verses 6 to 10. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas during the night. Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we're to have a deliberate gospel plan. We're to strategically make sensible decisions. And yet God overrules. This is direct intervention here. It's not unique to this chapter in Acts. There are supernatural dreams and visions and God guides and directs his people. And yet, even within Acts, they are rare. They're at key moments. You see it before the first missionary journey in chapter 10. God confirms that the gospel is for the Gentiles and then you see it here as well as they go out to Europe. Now, if you've got a church Bible, let me encourage you to keep a thumb in Acts 16 and go to the very, very end of your Bible. And this is where the geographers salivate. So, you can see that they are blocked from going into uh, Phrygia and Galatia. That's in Asia Minor. You can see that about halfway down, three quarters to the right, if you have a church Bible. Phrygia is just to the west of Galatia. Next, they're blocked from going north to Bithynia, if you can see it. And then we find out why. So they've been blocked in the middle, they've been blocked at the top. And why is that? Well, because the Lord has plans for them to enter Europe. They go to Macedonia. That's modern-day Greece for us. And we just don't know what factors the Lord used to block them. What it means that the Holy Spirit kept them from preaching the word in the province of Asia or the Spirit of Jesus keeps them from entering Bithynia. We just don't know. We can speculate, but it is just speculation. Maybe it was a practical circumstance that meant that they couldn't enter and they saw the hand of the Lord in that. Maybe it was the spirit of Jesus reminding them of his words that he would send them to the ends of the earth and they think, well, well Bithynia is just a bit too much of a backwater. Maybe we need to go further afield. We just don't know. We do know that there was this dream of this man from Macedonia and he brings them to Europe. And it's interesting because it's a very vivid dream. 
And it's come to an apostle. It's come to a key apostle. And yet I think Paul seems to submit it to his team still. Because Luke concludes or says, we concluded that God had called us to Macedonia. That's we, that's plural, that's the team together. Visions, dreams, feelings, intuitions, they're valuable. But you see, they're not the trump cards. Sometimes people can use them like that. They must be weighed by those who have the mind of Christ. By Paul's team there, by the leadership, but by the body of Christ as a whole. We don't know whether the Lord will give us some miraculous guidance as we pray and we consider planting and we think about our future. It was a unique time here in Acts 16. It was unusual. They were crossing racial and geographical boundaries for the first time. Maybe a special nudge from the Lord was necessary for them at this point. What we can be sure of is the Lord sovereignly overruling guiding us, leading us, moving us where he wants us. It may be that we find doors closed. It may be that we find surprising doors opened for us. So first point. In Acts 16, we see a deliberate gospel plan. It involved people. It involved places. And actually, we see it was the Lord's deliberate gospel plan as well. He sovereignly overrules His plan trumped Paul and the team's plan. Now in the rest of the chapter, I want you to see that there's, despite there being a deliberate gospel plan here, there is a real diversity in the kinds of people that are reached when they get to Philippi, and a real diversity in the way in which they are reached as well, different individuals that we encounter. He knows what we need, and he communicates with us in the kind of way that we need as well. So deliberate gospel plan and a diverse gospel people. Luke just gives us snapshots. Three contrasting people that we meet in Philippi. And notice that they, that they, they cross the spectrum of Greco-Roman life. They're very deliberate and they're different. First person is Lydia. We met her already by the riverside. She was at the prayer meeting, verse 14 and 15. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. You consider me a believer in the Lord, she said. Come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Lydia, we know she was definitely rich, She was definitely spiritual, she was probably unmarried, and she was possibly quite well known. You know she's rich because she deals in purple cloth. Purple was for the wealthy and for royalty. It's not clear, maybe she's some kind of commercial traveller who's come from Thyatira. She was often in business in Philippi. Maybe she's opened a business there in Philippi and her household is with her. Luke says she's a worshipper of God. That is, she's a God-fearer. She's probably a Gentile who reads her Hebrew Bible. And that's why she's at the prayer meeting. She's a homeowner, 
which probably means she's not married. And the fact that she's named, well, that seems to imply she is quite well known. She's notorious, perhaps. One commentator said it was normal in such a Greco-Roman setting not to mention women by personal name in public unless they were either notable or notorious. By the end of chapter 16, we see that the church is meeting in her house. So it may well be that she is notable. She's known for hosting the church there in Philippi. She's definitely, again, she's a, a vital component in new territory for this church being established, this church thriving. And yet it's interesting, what it seems that convinces her, the method the Lord seems to use is rational discourse. See, Paul gives the message, he explains the Bible, but the Lord unlocks her heart. Which is the same for us. We, we speak of Christ, and at the same time we're praying for the Lord to unlock their heart. That is profoundly liberating. As we seek to talk to our friends, it's not all about us, persuading them and twisting their arms and, and amazing illustrations and amazing explanation. He opens their hearts. We don't know it. Maybe she came to, to grasp something of the difference that Jesus makes. The difference between a man-centred religion of having to do and the fact that in Christ it's been done. On Thursday, a number of us did um, go to Real Life, which is our film club up at the church hall, and we watched a film called A Sensible Man. It's a film about a Jewish man, and this man, basically his life is falling apart. It doesn't really give you any answers, but it asks an awful lot of questions. Everything's falling apart, his marriage, his work, his family, his life. And yet near the end, the Cohen brothers, as the way that they often do, in their insightful, cheeky, bizarre way, they show us an episode at this guy's son's bar mitzvah. And as the rabbi is there, he's holding up the Torah above his head, first five books of the Bible. It's this huge scroll. And he's trying to hold it up above his head and he can't manage it. And he drops it and he blasphemes and says, Jesus Christ! in the middle of this bar mitzvah. And you think, the irony can't be intentional. What he says is actually who he needs. He can't uphold the law. He can't do it. Maybe Lydia sees that who she needs is Jesus, the one who keeps the law for her, and so she trusts him. She can be secure in what he has done rather than what she has to do. So her sin is dealt with and her relationship with God is restored. Firstly, we have Lydia, a God-fearer, a rich God-fearer, who trusts Jesus. The second is a slave girl, and she is very much the opposite of Lydia. She's financially poor. She's completely unnamed. She's utterly powerless. We know she's dominated by both some spiritual force And dominated by owners as well. People who make money from her. And she hounds Paul and his team. She she looks for them this time. And she says, verse 17. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. 
Finally, Paul becomes so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. So if Lydia is the wealthy woman, the the chief executive who owns her own business, here is the teenage drug addict prostitute. If Lydia is reached through, through reason and through teaching, she seems to be reached through being liberated, redeemed, freed, the power of God able to to rescue her from her situation. Notice when when the gospel comes, it's across the board. She's liberated internally and externally, spiritually, socially. In the news again this week in Oxford, shows us that there is severe and complicated oppression. Operation Bullfinch, another man arrested in the probe regarding child trafficking and prostitution. As we consider planting, potentially in more deprived areas, I know a number of people here have a real heart for that. Who knows who the Lord might bring across our path? Who knows who might come looking for Jesus, for rescue. Who knows who might need freedom? And finally, we have the jailer. The story rumbles on. Our slave girl is freed. Her owners kick up a fuss. And Paul and the team are hauled before the magistrates in Philippi. And the magistrates oblige. They flog them uh, and they lock them up in prison. Pick it up with me, verse 23. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He, he then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now again, so much we could say, just going to be selective. Notice again the contrast in who he is and how he's reached with the gospel. Who is he? He is a man. There is hope for us, chaps. He's almost certainly a former Roman soldier. Because they were the guys that took these positions. They got the civil servant jobs in the colonies. It's almost certainly who he was. And he doesn't seem to need the intellectual discourse, although Paul does explain the gospel to him. He doesn't seem to particularly need liberating from oppression. My reading of it is that if he's a soldier, or even if he's not, he's a man and honour matters to him. What matters to him is honour. That was why he was going to fall on his sword, because on his watch, the prisoners walked out. On his duty, they escaped. He was a proud, working-class bloke. 
blue-collar man. It wasn't that earthquakes were rare. Archaeology will tell us that. It, was that he was convinced, it wasn't that he was convinced by a miraculous earthquake. I take it he was convinced by their actions. That was why he was convinced. So firstly, I guess in their attitude to suffering, verse 25, there they are praising God in the midst of their suffering. They have a joy. They have something in them that is so deep and so different that he knows there's something about them. But the second thing was that they would not repay evil with evil, but evil with good. He was a man of honour, a man of consequences, and he had never seen anything like it. They don't run off when they could have. They show him grace. They perhaps don't treat him as he deserves. So countercultural, so different, so life-changing. And so he opens the door to them. Verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds and immediately he and all his household were baptised. Simply showing grace. Simply suffering differently. And he's transformed. He, he sees it's, it's real. So that's Philippi, founded, planted by a divine, deliberate gospel plan and full of diverse gospel people, reached the same gospel in different ways. I would love to have been at one of their meetings. Can you imagine that in Lydia's house? People from all kinds of backgrounds, nationalities, experiences, needs, and yet united together by Jesus, by the good news about him. Some of them needed intellectual persuasion and that convinced them. Some of them needed to be freed, liberated. Some of them needed to see joy and grace in action. And so I take it we dare not limit the Lord as we consider our future. Oxford, as you probably know, is full of all kinds of people. East Oxford, as our, as our vision statement says, is full of peoples, plural. Different people groups all congregate here. And so let me encourage you to keep your vision and your prayers broad as you consider our future. As you seek the Lord at this time. And notice as well that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach when you think about evangelism. When you think about engaging with different people. They perhaps need different things. Where else would you find a rich trader and her household sat next to a jailer and his household and then perhaps a teenage girl who used to be possessed? Diverse churches display the glory of Jesus. Where else would you find people like that united together? Let's pray that he might use us 
to be that kind of a church and to plant those kinds of churches.